All right, we are working our way slowly through the 28-chapter book of Acts. And today, we find ourselves in the very beginning of chapter 19. Dan finished 18 last week, which was the end, really actually the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey, kind of camped out of Antioch, which is the capital of Syria at the time. And this really, this is his third missionary journey. We're going to pick him up making his way into Ephesus. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Acts chapter 19. We're going to read the first seven verses. If you don't have a Bible, you'll have it in your notes, and I'll have it on the screen as well. Starting here in verse 1. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. Now, it's interesting that Luke tells us that Apollos has left Ephesus. That's where he was last week. And now he's moved on to Corinth. And one of the reasons I think he does that is because he wants us to be clear that, that Apollos really isn't being instructed by Paul. It was Aquila and Priscilla that corrected him, and uh, he's off to Corinth, and now Paul shows up here in Ephesus. So it says, there he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. By the way, this is the only time that's ever recorded that we have someone being baptized twice. So verse 6, when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. And there were about 12 men in all. Father, we want to thank you for the gift of your Spirit. We want to thank you for the gift of your Son. Lord, we pray that your Spirit would speak to each one of us where we're at, that you would draw us close to you tonight through your Word. Father, I thank you so much that you have given us your son, that we know forgiveness and mercy and grace in him, and you have given us your spirit, and in him we have you with us every single day. It's just an amazing thing to try and comprehend that you indwell each believer with your spirit, but that's the truth of your scripture And the truth that we know in our lives, those who listen to the voice of the Spirit can recognize, Lord, your change in our lives. So I pray, Lord, for our time together tonight. I pray that you, most of all, would be honored and glorified. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Okay, you know, this text right here, it's a short section, but I'll tell you what, this is one of those that I would much prefer to have in a sit-down discussion where we could have questions back and forth as opposed to just kind of talking for 30 or 40 minutes about what's going on here. And I was laughing because someone came up to me after the second service and they said, seems like you always get the sticky passages right? The ones you kind of have to make sure that, you, you know, you're, you're being very careful about what you're saying because people get very sensitive about the Scripture and especially about the Holy Spirit. But that's what we're going to talk about today. So, again, Paul is in his third missionary journey. 
By the way, somebody gave, handed Rex, who then gave me a laser pointer this morning that said, Dan's laser pointer is weak. This one will work really well. And so I tried to use it on the screen. Didn't work. Not at all. She was not convinced. She said I pushed the wrong button, but it, it didn't, it was not working. So you can see the star up there in Antioch. This is where Paul starts and he goes up. It says he took the inland route, interior is what it says. And so when we pick it up, really Paul is moving from Antioch, Pisidia there and then moving into Ephesus. And I'm not going to go too much into details about Ephesus because in January, we're actually going to work through, and I've said this, we're going to work through the book of Ephesians. It's one of the things we're trying to do is as we follow Paul's journeys to stop along the way and then look at something he wrote during these missionary journeys. And so we're going to spend some time in January working through the letter uh, to the church in Ephesus. I, I will say this, Ephesus was one at this time one of the absolute most important trade cities in the entire Mediterranean. It's got a seaport, so ships can come in, and then it has a north, south, and east land trade route. So this place is extremely busy. And Paul is actually going to spend two years here. Now, if you remember just a, a little while ago, Paul came through Ephesus, but he didn't stay very long and said, if the Lord wills it, I'll come back. And this, this is exactly what he does. He comes back and he stays for two years. I was looking at this map and I was thinking, you know, we should have handed out those things you get at the restaurant with the like draw by numbers with the dots and you could have just drawn Paul's missionary journey and who knows what you could have come up with. But today what we're really going to do is we're going to focus on the Holy Spirit's role in this text. Because the Holy Spirit is the main character all throughout the book of Acts. I know we talk about Peter kind of being the lead apostle in the very beginning of the books, and we talk about how that shifts to Paul. They are, they are people who are important in the story, but this story is about God continuing his work that he began in Jesus through his spirit in the people that continue to take the good news of his kingdom out, as Jesus would say, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. That's what's happening. And it's the Holy Spirit that's drawing people into the church. It's the Holy Spirit that empowers Peter to preach and thousands to come. It's the Holy Spirit that indwells Paul to do what he's doing. And in many cases, we see what's happening in this story where the Holy Spirit indwells people and they are overcome with joy and proclamation of who God is. And it comes out in these supernatural ways. So before we even dig into the really the nuance of the text, I think it's important to just ask this question, because this is what Paul asked these 12 guys here in Ephesus. And it's the title of the message, have you received the Holy Spirit? So what does that even mean? I mean, what does it, what does it take for anybody to receive the Holy Spirit. And Jesus makes it very clear to his disciples before his crucifixion, before he leaves, that he has to go in order to send the Spirit. John records this in the 16th chapter of his letter. Jesus says, truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, that's the Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, 
I will send them to you. So Jesus has to then ascend back to the right hand of the Father in order to send the Spirit. And that's exactly what we see happen really in the second chapter of the book of Acts. It happens in Jerusalem and the festival of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit indwells the disciples and they start speaking in these languages that they don't know, but the people who've come from all over for the festival are hearing the good news preached in their languages. And many people are brought into the family of God because of it. I mean, this is part of Peter's uh, sermon here. What do you need to do? They respond, well, okay, we've heard that Jesus is the Messiah, and this is what's happening. So how do we respond to that? Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Not in the name of John the Baptist, not in Apollos' name, not in Paul's name, but in the name of Jesus Christ. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's from this point forward that the Holy Spirit will be the defining characteristic characteristic of all believers moving forward. It's why Paul asked them, have you received the Spirit? That's like the defining character trait in them that shows that they've received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Paul, to the letter uh, to the church in Rome, would go so far as to say, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't have Christ. He says, you are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. And that's a pretty bold statement right there. So why in the world does Paul ask these men if they've received the Holy Spirit? I mean, Luke refers to them as disciples. Second thing I really want to look at is how do we understand the supernatural experience of prophecy and tongues that we see happening, not not just in this story, but in other stories in the book of Acts. And the last thing is, you know, what does a genuine relationship with the Holy Spirit look like, both then and then now today as well? What is the purpose or the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives, both what's going on at Pentecost and then what is going on in our lives today? So we'll begin with why does Paul ask these guys if they have the Spirit. Because Luke refers to them as disciples, but we need to understand that term disciple, it's not exclusive to like the 12 guys who are Jesus' closest friends who lived with him during his public ministry. The term disciple really is best understood as student. And Luke uses it in a number of different ways. Matter of fact, in the fifth chapter of his letter, he uses it to describe students of of other people. There are, are religious leaders that are confronting Jesus and he, he records this. The religious leaders ask Jesus, they say, John's disciples, that's John the Baptist, they often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. So you, you could be a student of any teacher. I mean, the Pharisees were the religious leaders in Jerusalem at the time. So you, you could be a disciple of the Pharisee, you could be a disciple of John the Baptist, you could be a disciple of Jesus. You know, one of the questions that... Uh, I get asked, you know, especially, and it's a, good, it's a good question. You ask, well, why in the world is John baptizing people in the first place? Where does that come from? Where, 
why would he be out doing that? And why would people not think that that was something weird or out of the ordinary? And, you know, the, the Jewish Judaism really had a number of what they would call ceremonial cleansings, different rituals that would go through if people were found unclean. So if you came across a, a dead person or an animal or all, all kinds of different things that would make you what they would call ceremonially unclean, then there's the simple things such as hand washing, but there were also ceremonies that required full immersion in the same way that we, we baptize people today. So there's one ceremony, it's called Tevilah, and it would take place in a river or in something like this, which is called a mikveh, and it was built, these were built, see the water had to be fresh and moving, so either in a river or something like this built on a spring. The water had to be freshly fed from somewhere other than just people putting in there. And they would have these ceremonial washings where they were full immersion cleansing the people. So John the Baptist kind of doing this out in the river wouldn't have been super out of the ordinary. Why he was doing it would be because he was taking that ceremony and then saying that this is about repentance and belief in the Messiah who is to come, which is not what the Jewish people believed about Jesus. You know, this is one of the things that most likely Apollos is teaching when he's in Ephesus. Because remember, these 12 guys have been baptized into John's bap baptism. Well, John's not in Ephesus. John actually has been dead for quite some time. So it's likely that Apollos is the one who's kind of continuing this, the baptism of John. And Aquila and Priscilla pull him aside and say, you, you've only got half the story. It's, it's good half of the story, but now we're talking about the continuation of the new life in Christ, not just repentance, but a new life in Jesus. See, I think Paul knows that the Holy Spirit is far more than any ceremony. He is God. He is in the Godhead, the Trinity. And so the Holy Spirit doesn't just cleanse us. The Holy Spirit enables us to experience the change and the growth that God wants in our lives. He is the agent of change that God uses. He is God. He is God with us. So he asked the men, have you been baptized? Which again, is not just what John the Baptist was doing. It's what Jesus commanded in Matthew 28. Go into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And Peter continues that in Pentecost. We, we saw, he says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So Paul must not have seen something he was looking for in these guys because his hunch is right. And not only do they, have they not been baptized in, into Christ, they're not even aware that there is a Holy Spirit, which is kind of weird because the Holy Spirit is not a New Testament aspect of God. He is in the very first pages of our Bible and creation. So you have to wonder how much did these guys actually know about God? But Paul fills them in. And the beautiful continuation of the story of new life in Christ. And he baptizes them in the name of Jesus. They receive the Holy Spirit. The same thing happens to them as what happened at Pentecost in Jerusalem. And they start prophesying and speaking in tongues. So 
you know, how do we understand really the supernatural aspect of what's going on here, the, the prophesying and speaking in tongues? You know, we, we have denominations in Christianity that are on very different ends of the spectrum when it comes to what they believe about the Holy Spirit's gifts in the life of believers. And this story in Acts chapter 19 is right at the center of it. And I was having this conversation with Nick before, just this early this morning and thinking about, well, what was God's purpose for these tongues, these languages at Pentecost? Why did he do that? And it's because it's the opposite of what happened at the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel was a confusing of languages that dispersed everybody. And here we are at Pentecost, and what is he doing? He is preaching, that men are preaching in languages they don't know, but that people have come from thousands of miles for the festival of Pentecost, and, and they're being brought into the family of God because they're hearing the kingdom of God preached in their own languages. And so the purpose of that is to expand and bring into the family of God more people. So I think it is extremely sad how divisive the idea of what the Holy Spirit does in the church today doesn't bring us so much together as it divides us. And we don't want to be with those guys. And it goes both ways, by the way. It's not just one-sided. It's, it's if you don't believe what I believe about the Holy Spirit, then, then I don't want anything to do with you, right? And there's different aspects of how the Holy Spirit, Spirit works. This case, in this story, this is a carbon copy of what's happening in Pentecost. Again, in the very beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, then into Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And what do we see? We see Pentecost, where this happens, and there's an explosion of people speaking in languages that they don't know, but other people recognize, and they are brought into the family of God. And as we work through the book of Acts, it doesn't happen in every case the same way. But you get to a guy named Cornelius, and it does happen like this. And they speak in these languages, and the family is brought into the kingdom of God. And you know where Cornelius lives? In Judea. And where are we now? We're very far from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And so this is happening again as this is God's way of expanding the church during this time. So I, I, I do want to say, and I think this is really important, I, I do believe that having people in my life that I don't see 100% eye-to-eye theologically is actually a good thing. And, and that we can have fellowship and be friends. And if they don't agree with my understanding of who God is, I still want those people in my life. I truly believe, Philip Schaff said this so well, he's a church historian. He said, in the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, grace. And that's really the place that I choose to camp when it comes to this, because I, I believe that there is enough room in God's kingdom for people who I disagree with theologically, because I'm going to have a confession here. I don't know everything. <laughs> I know, it's a shock, right? 
Here's another confession. Neither do you. Okay? <laughs> yep, here we go. Yep, yep, yep. And so can we be gracious with each other and, and realize that God is often bigger than our understanding of what he does and doesn't do? You know, we are given very clear instructions on how to approach texts like this. We are told in, um, yeah, 1 John chapter 4. can't believe I just forgot that. 1 John chapter 4, to test every spirit. Test every spirit. So if you're not doing that, if everything you hear you say is from God, then you are not being faithful to what the Word of God says to do, which is to test every spirit, which implies that there are spirits who are not telling you what God wants you to hear. So yes, test every spirit. Also, 2 Timothy chapter 4 tells us to make sure that we guard our doctrine. There, is, there are boundaries that we do need to recognize. The scripture also tells us not to treat prophecy with contempt. See, there, there's a balance in here. I mean, this is exactly what Paul tells the Thessalonians. He says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do not push down. Do not abandon. Do not ignore what the Holy Spirit is doing. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. That takes work. That requires us to, to really work through. We can't just have our box of everything we agree with and then push everything else out. We have to work through this every single day. Is this something God has given us or is it not? And you do that by aligning it with his word and his character and you do it in the community of other believers. See, I think we quench the spirit when we say he doesn't operate in supernatural ways anymore. Because I don't think we can put that boundary on God. I think we also quench the spirit when we say everything goes and we act crazy. And the spirit of God will not have you act in out of alignment with God and his character. He won't do it because, newsflash, he's God. So if we're going to be a church, and I really do want us to be a church that resembles what the early church was founded on. Jesus Christ, Son of God, crucified, resurrected on the third day, ascended to the right hand of the Father and sent the Spirit, then we need to have space for people that we disagree with. See, and I, I, I do, I need to be clear when I say that. I'm not talking about allowing false teaching about Jesus or the Spirit. Jesus is not Michael the archangel. He's not one of many gods. The Spirit is not an it. It isn't he. Okay, I'm, ta I'm not talking about just accepting anything out there. That's what 2 Timothy chapter 4 says. Do not accept that teaching. Men will accept teaching that tickles their ears. And, and we're not going to do that. We're going to conform to what the Word says, not have the Word conform to what we want it to say. So when we read a story like this, when we read something in the Bible, it, we need to be very careful and understand that there are many different genres in the scriptures, and they need to be read the, the way they were written. So when you read poetry and a genealogy, those are meant to be read differently. You have historical accounts of things that are going on, and you have Jesus' teaching. And all of those, again, are meant to be read and absorbed differently. Differently. 
There's a difference between text that we would call descriptive, just describing something that's going on, and texts that are prescriptive, that give instruction. And I'll give you a couple examples here. In John chapter 17, it's an amazing prayer. You should go home and read this. Not right now, but after we're done here. Jesus is praying to the Father. And it's just, it's this honest, amazing prayer. And he says, Lord, he says, Father, may they be one as you and I are one. And when you read that, that is, that is describing how Jesus is connected to the Father. He, it is not a prescription on how we should pray. It's not a model. You can emulate some that's in that prayer, but that's not the primary purpose of what it's there for. Now, you can, you can move to Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11, where Jesus' disciples ask him, how should we pray? And he tells them very clearly, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, you know, you can recite it word for word if you want. I don't think that's actually his intent. I think what he's trying to show you is what's most important to God in our prayers. And it begins with, hallowed be his name. And the second thing that's most important to God, his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, we, we, it's number three when we get to ourselves. We usually start with ourselves, number one. If you really want to follow the model of prayer that Jesus taught, you're number three. God gets one and two. That's a prescriptive prayer. See, if we, if we read a text that said, Jesus went up to Galilee, and we said, that means all Christians need to go up to Galilee, that would be misinterpreting that right? Or, or when we read, love your neighbor, and we said, well, he didn't really mean me. He was talking to those guys back then. See, th that's how we get those mixed up, and that's often what happens with texts like this. We read something, and we say, this is the, it's just easy for us to do, right? We can package it and say, here's the thing, and you just do this from here on out, and everybody's fine with it. That's not how the text is meant to work, and we've got, here's the thing, we've abused this on both ends. And this church knows very well um, what it's like to experience when the teaching about the Holy Spirit gets abused and relationships suffer because we get on these other ends of the spectrum and we start saying, well, I don't really know if you're a true follower if you don't believe in the Spirit in the same way that I do. And you know what? I'm going to tell you, if you are a believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells in you. This is the Word of God. Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? If you are in Christ, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is where God has chosen to reside now, is, is in us. I mean, that's just amazing. And like I said, this, what we see in here is not something that happens in every case. It does happen. So we have to acknowledge that it is real. But it doesn't happen in every case. So we can't say that that's normative for all people and all times. Matter of fact, just in the book of Acts, it's less than half of the conversion stories. Do you have people speaking in tongues and prophesying when they receive 
God's spirit. It doesn't happen with Lydia in Philippi. Is Lydia's life changed because of the spirit of God? Oh, you bet. Her entire family is baptized and her house immediately becomes a place of ministry. That's a, that's a huge change, but it happens differently than what happens here. I do want to say that, uh, you know, we're talking about this idea of tongues. It's used in, in a number of different ways. It's used in, the word is, is glossa in Greek, and it's, it's used to describe someone speaking a language that they, they don't know, but other people recognize, but it's also used to describe a heavenly language, really, that, that nobody knows, that's not able to be interpreted. And it's meant to be something that people do in uh, private, in prayer with God. Vine's expository, expository Dictionary defines the word glossa as this, the supernatural gift of speaking in another language without its having been learnt. Wouldn't you love that? Like you just go to Mexico and all of a sudden start speaking Spanish? That'd be amazing, right? I have to go to Nick for Spanish because my Spanish is terrible. But it's the same word that's used in Acts chapter 2, and it's the same thing that happens in Acts chapter 2. You know, Paul connects this idea of Pentecost and what's happening with these men speaking in different languages with a prophecy that comes out of Isaiah 28. I mean, th this, is, this is amazing. So Isaiah says to the people, he says, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Th this is a prophecy talking about what God was going to do and that happened at this time. He... The people of Israel had rejected him. And so God says, I'm going to proclaim my, my kingdom in foreign languages to my people. It's a referendum on the Jewish people. They had rejected God, and so he was going to expand now the family out into Gentiles. He's not leaving the Jewish people. Paul's a Jew. He's expanding the family now to include Gentiles. Now, if you were to ask me today, like, you know, do you believe that speaking in tongues is a gift that the Holy Spirit gives today? I, I would answer this way. I think what we see in the book of Acts with the languages that uh, are interpreted because other people are there that hear it being taught in their own languages, that I think is something that happened at a time that God was using to expand his kingdom. And it's because it's very specific in Acts as that goes out. I've never been in a place where I've experienced that today, but if you were to ask me if there still is prayer in a heavenly language, I would tell you I know some very faithful, Jesus-loving people who believe with all their heart that they have that gift from the Spirit. I, I don't personally, but, but they do. So I would say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not gonna rule out anything that God wants to do and when he wants to do it. I know from my experience, I don't have that gift, but I definitely have the Spirit of God because Jesus is my King. He is my Lord and He is my Savior. And I can tell when His Spirit is directing me, and I can tell when I'm resisting his spirit. So I can also say having that gift is not a prerequisite for receiving the Holy Spirit. Anybody teaches that, that is, that is, that is on the far ends of what really is out of bounds theologically. It's never taught that way in the Scripture. 
So I hope that's encouraging to you if you don't have that gift. Now, as far as prophecy goes, I, I, I think that, you know, we tend to define that word probably more narrowly than they did in, in this story or actually in the, in, in the first century. When I think of the word prophecy, or I, I think of prophets from the Old Testament. I think of people who talked about the future, told about the, the, what the Messiah would look like, the things that he would do hundreds of years before he was born, so that the people could be ready. They could be watching and know and recognize him when he came. Or like us, look back as we often do at Christmas, and say, look at all of these prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Clearly, he is the Messiah. But the word prophecy is used more broadly often in the scriptures. I like, you know, gotquestions.org. It's a great website. Just if you have people who want simple answers to questions like this, they don't dive really deep, but they do have a, a good basic uh, understanding. And they say this, to prophecy really is just to proclaim a message from God. And although foretelling, future telling, is often associated with prophecy, revealing the future is not a necessary element of prophecy in the way that it's used. If you go back to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, and you talk about a prophet and his prophecy, there's a very strict regulation about what that looks like. As it goes on into the New Testament, um, that starts to expand from just predicting the future to really proclaiming the kingdom of God, both now and in the future. So all this really leads us to the place that I want to land, which is what does a genuine relationship with the Spirit of God look like? What, what is his role? If his role back then was to expand and grow the church and God's kingdom, what is his role in our lives today? And I think his role still is to grow and expand God's family and his church. But I also think, and this is probably the most important thing for us to really get our minds around today, the Holy Spirit is God's chosen vehicle to bring about the change and growth in your life that can only happen through God. He is how we connect and are drawn to the Father. He is how we reject sin in our past and how we pursue godliness in the future. So you want to ask, well, what does it look like to be a person who is filled with God's Spirit? It's not necessarily going to come in supernatural ways. As a matter of fact, we spent nine weeks this summer going through this very text to be reminded exactly what it does look like to be filled with the Spirit of God. It looks like being a person who has love and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. It looks like somebody who is living by following the Spirit, will, will look this way in, in their lives. They won't be filled with fits of anger or rage or lust. Or when they are, they are not walking in the Spirit. That's, if, you're, if you're in those places, you know you're not walking with the Spirit. Because this is what it looks like to walk with the Spirit. You know, so we have to ask ourselves... If the Holy Spirit really has indwelt us, how are our lives different than the people who don't have God's Spirit? We, we should be visibly different in how we make decisions and how we treat one another, the things we prioritize, how generous we are with things other people aren't. 
because the Spirit of God is the one that we're following rather than the Spirit of this world. See, Paul would say even the gifts can be used inappropriately. These amazing spiritual gifts can be used inappropriately if they're not used for love. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. Who wants that in their ear? Nobody does. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have the faith that can move mountains but I do not have love, I am nothing. The the word that Paul uses for love over and over again here is the word agape, which is the word that is most associated with God's love. The Greek language has a number of different words for love, but agape is the primary word to talk about God's love. And so what Paul is saying is, if I do not have God's love, then all of these things I do are, are meaningless. Because the purpose of the gifts is for the body, to bring the body together, to grow the church. It's not to point at ourselves because we have these supernatural gifts. It's to grow the body. And so if that's not what they're being used for, then it's, they're not being used properly. Paul would write this to the church in Rome. God's agape has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So how has the Holy Spirit drastically changed your life? This week, this month, this past year, I mean, that's something I want you to walk home and, and not walk home. Maybe you can, maybe you can, a couple people in here can walk home, okay? When you go home, ask yourself, when was the last time I really experienced the Holy Spirit bringing about change in my life? This week I was thinking, um, there's a question actually in a book that I was reading, which was, if you were to ask most Christians today, if they could have one day with Jesus or the Holy Spirit, which one would they choose? That's a tough question. I mean, honestly, one day with Jesus, are you kidding me? That would be amazing. I mean, unless it was the day that their boat was about to sink, um, I wouldn't want to be there on that day. Uh, I, would, I don't think I'd want to be at the cross watching that happen to Jesus. And I definitely wouldn't want to be one of the guys who was trying not to fall asleep in the middle of the night while Jesus was saying, stay awake. I, I wouldn't want to be any other day, though, with Jesus would be absolutely amazing. But Jesus said, it is better for you that I go so I can send the Spirit and He can be with you every day. So there's... You know, it's a trick question to be with Jesus. He, he is with us every single day in his spirit. Paul said this in his letter to the Corinthians, the Corinthians, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We sing that song. 
And we all who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory. You know what he's talking about there? He's talking about how Moses went up on the mountain and because he was in the presence of God came down and his face was glowing. It was so vibrant that he had to put a veil on his face. And Paul is saying you have access to that same God and you don't have to wear a veil. But what you do get to do is you get to be transformed into his image with an ever-creasing glory that comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so if we have the Spirit, Paul says our lives should reflect the glory of God in a way that's different from people who don't have the Spirit. You know, I had uh, four conversations this week with four different people, and really just about something that God had placed on my heart. And when I say that, I just, I mean that if there's something going through my mind and it relates to what God's doing in my life and it keeps coming back, it's something that I I feel like I have to listen to, run through scripture to make sure that I'm testing the spirit. But in every one of those conversations, and actually in the fourth conversation, the person came to me, God had placed the, the exact same thing on every one of their hearts. And all of us were in unity, in alignment, with what we felt God was telling us to do. So we take that, again, I'm not just going to take four people, you know, told me this thing and I'm going to trust it back to the scriptures. And does this align with God and his character? Yes, it does. So thank you, Holy Spirit, for leading us. See, that's how I want us to continue to grow this church, not because we have amazing programs or a strategic growth plan. I want this church, the global church and Sierra Community Church, to grow because God's spirit is alive and well, and he is drawing people in here because they see the spirit is alive and well in here. That's how it worked in the early church. That's how God grows the church is through his spirit. I I should say in a genuine, healthy way. I mean, we could just play Disney movies and get a bunch of people in the, mo- in the building, right? That's not what we're intending to do. We want people who are devoted to Jesus, and that happens when they're following the Spirit of God. And so I'd ask you as a church to continue to pray with us about how the Spirit can continue to direct us to welcome people who aren't a part of this community and to serve the community that we live in. And I want to challenge you guys this week to ask the Spirit of God, to give Him space in your life to direct you, to correct you, to encourage you, to counsel you, to give you His wisdom. And that's how we're going to close tonight is by just taking a couple minutes and I'll pray and, and I'll leave some space for us just to listen to God. So Father, I, I do thank you so much for your Spirit. It is something that is incomprehensible to me that you have chosen the broken vessel that I am to be the temple of your very presence in your spirit. Father, you you have chosen to do that, and so I willingly thank you and accept being led by you. Help all of us, Lord, to make space for your voice to listen to you, to, uh, to always make sure that we're testing what we're hearing in line with your character and your word. 
but Lord, to not lean on our own understanding, but instead to admit that we are utterly dependent on you every single day. And so maybe the first thing that crosses our lips in the morning, Lord, may your spirit guide me today. Show me the people that you want me to be in contact with. Help me to be a person of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Lord, I want to make space for you to speak to each one of us tonight. Help us to listen to your voice. Lord, you are good. You are good all the time. You just keep reminding me every single day of how good you are. During the highs and the lows of life, you are never changing. You are the rock and the foundation of our lives. You are the place that we find true peace, contentment, and purpose. So, Father, may we never forget to listen to your voice and to allow your spirit to lead us and guide us and to be people who come together who are unified in you, Jesus. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. We're going to continue our worship with our offering and then close with a song. Thanks for being here tonight, guys. Hope you had a good weekend.